Hello and welcome to another episode of How to Change the World podcast. This is a podcast about reversing American decline, where we study successful models of governance throughout history, primarily in the West, highlight what's going wrong, leading to institutional decline or political decay, and present models of democratic innovation that could lead us into a prosperous, peaceful, and abundant 21st century. So this may be the first uh, podcast you're encountering that we've done. We did another one, but it really wasn't. Um, I didn't spread the word very much about it. And so, uh, well, I was working out the kinks, and that's what I'm doing again today. So with, these, with this first batch of podcasts, it's really just going to be um, – me practicing reading the articles that I write on Substack at How to Change the World. That's the name of our Substack. And um, so I'll just be reading those, providing some commentary, learning about uh, uploading everything. And yeah, so that's that's really what this is about here for the first few. So it's not going to be, you know, I'm not going to stress out about making a perfect production uh I might put on a nice shirt at some time, but at the moment I'm just wearing like a, you know, the house stuff and drinking coffee. And so bear with me because this is just like a little bit of a, an experiment about how this is going to go. But I will give you real content. There is content this week. Um, so I'm going to talk through really quickly what you can expect with this podcast going forward. I, I've thought through it and I think this is basically going to be how this is going to go. Um, there'll be an intro to the podcast, kind of, uh, maybe I'll give a few brief comments on what's going on that week, um, things that didn't make it into the essay. Uh, then I will read the essay, which has three sections. Usually there's an intro, um, there's a discussion of a current event, uh, something which has happened in governance, and then comments on a book that I'm reading. Uh, right now I'm reading Trust by Francis Fukuyama. This week I didn't actually have a section on uh, on the book, but that's unusual. I almost always do. And between the current event and the book, the theory is that we are um, getting something new and trying to kind of stay on the frontier of governance and, and innovation, um, but also with the book anchoring to something that's been thought through and studied and usually more historical. One of the things that I think America teaches you uh, given that we're such an extraordinarily successful experiment in governance in the past, one of the things that it teaches you is that there are things in history, there are, um, there's a lot of times in the past when governance has been much better. You can look in the past and see you know, way more innovation, a way more stable currency, way more affordable lifestyle, um, just everything kind of clicking a lot more uh, in terms of the economy in terms of upward mobility, etc., etc., and uh, so we can look in the past and, and try and extrapolate, like, well, what was working about that? And so we want to be taking both of these views. Uh, now, I won't go off forever on this topic, but like, one of the things we want to make sure that we avoid is that people who have some kind of a revolutionary plan for fixing our problems who aren't anchored in history can create. Tremendous damage, kind of like the communists did in the 20th century when they went ahead and murdered like 100 million of their own citizens in China, Russia, Cambodia, elsewhere, and even the, the present socialist experiments, which continue to 
to fail, they're not drawing on history. They have this these ideas on the way governance should go, but they don't draw on history. And so we will be drawing on history and our long, proud lineage of the development of representative democracy uh, and capitalism, usually. And so, yeah, we'll be trying to take these things which have worked, which currently are barely working. They're limping along. They're not dead, but they're also uh, in very bad condition. Uh, and by the way, just as an aside, so I can understand why people do criticize them, because it's a common misunderstanding that, you know, what's going on right now is democracy when, you know, in many ways it's not. And people think what's going on right now is capitalism, and in many ways it's not. But those things have taken place in the past to greater and lesser degrees uh, to different levels of success. So anyway, uh, I've said enough about that. History, present day. So that's what we're going to be doing. That's that's how this is going to go, is uh, the essay usually has an intro, current event, and then something from a book that I'm reading, and then I'll give just a little bit of commentary on it. So that's what you can expect every week. I will be doing this every... Well, every Wednesday I release a um, an essay, and then I should be doing this podcast almost every week. However, it requires like equipment like a microphone and stuff. And so when I'm traveling, I can't do it. Um, and I'm traveling next week, so I will not be having a podcast next week, but I will uh, following that. I will try and be uh, pretty regular with it. Or maybe I'll just record one next week uh, with no equipment and see how that goes. Okay, so I'm about to dive into the essay now. Let's do it. Okay, so this week's essay was called How to Fix the Entire System in Just One Talk. Um, so the intro here... Uh, the Canadian Parliament gave a standing ovation to a literal, literal Nazi the other day. I'm not talking about just a literal Nazi, the chosen description for MAGA Trump supporters, but an actual member of the SS. It was an accident, of course. All they knew is that he was 98 years old and fought the Russians. Apparently, the entire Canadian Parliament are mathematically challenged because that places this particular gentleman in World War II when Russia was our ally, and those who fought them were the racial essentialists of their day, let's say. Uh, though I'm sure many who clapped felt coerced and suspicious and applauded begrudgingly, the story still serves as a peek behind the curtain. Whether they clapped in ignorance or cowardice, for a moment it was obvious that these people are simply told what to do. Clapping like trained seals for whoever is trotted out in front of them. They are not, in fact, real leaders. Few would argue that the U.S. Congress is much better. Perhaps we should be concerned when we see wealth and power concentrating at the federal level at a time when both domestic and international fabric appears to be tearing apart. This is a little harsh, but you get my point, you know? Uh, and so I just wanted, I don't know, for whatever reason I wanted to... <laughs> To highlight that, I've read that a couple of times and I'm like, oh, am I being a little mean-spirited? Uh, I think no. I think a bunch of people clapping for somebody they don't know who he is. Turns out he's a Nazi. It tells you something. It tells you that there's a little bit of vapidness going on uh, in this body. So back to the essay, how to fix the system in one talk. Below is an analysis of the best talk I've ever seen on American government dysfunction. Only after you understand the source of this dysfunction can you start to take steps to address it. The presentation is fluid and simple and gets at the very root of America's malfunction. 
It's an explanation for why our prosperity is evaporating before our very eyes. If you're willing to watch this video, just skip my essay and watch the link below. But if you feel like reading or listening in this case, uh, I'll summarize some of the talk and give you some of my thoughts. Try to explain why resolving the issue of regulatory capture that Gurley illuminates will unlock so much creativity, innovation, wealth, and well-being in this country. So if it wasn't made clear enough there, that this is a talk on regulatory capture. That is the key thing. And uh, if you come to the essay, you can get, uh, you'll see the link to the uh, video, or if you want to go on YouTube and check it out, uh, it's just called 2,851 Miles, and it's presented by Bill Gurley at the All In Summit, G-U-R-L-E-Y. Okay, when Bill Gurley asked to talk to his congressman, the congressman gladly obliged. With the slight caveat, we learn that he required over $100,000 in small donations to show up. I know you're not surprised, and no, this essay is not about political corruption, at least not the small fry kind, the six-figure kind. No, this story is about how politicians and big business have figured out a way to work together for their mutual benefit, shielding big business from competition, plundering the U.S. taxpayer, snuffing out innovation, and bringing our economy to the brink of insolvency in the process. It's going to be sunny. This is a sunny essay, obviously. Um, colliding with commercial interests. First section. Gurley's fourth VC investment was a company called Tropos Network. It was a municipal broadband provider that bathed entire downtowns in Wi-Fi. They were close to a deal in Philadelphia when they started meeting extraordinary resistance, not from voters or citizens, but from commercial interests. Telecom companies, namely Verizon and Comcast, had marshaled their significant lobbying resources to combat municipal broadband from passing. After a massive effort, they won, and Tropos Network was sent packing. So there are slides in this essay. I took screenshots of Gurley's slides. Uh, you can't see them, so I'm going to read them. Um, so here's a slide. In 2000, this is a quote. In 2004, as Philadelphia was embarking on the research phase of the project, Verizon successfully pushed a bill through the state legislature severely restricting any Pennsylvania municipality's ability to launch a municipal broadband network. It turns out Verizon had pushed through a bill limiting municipal broadband through the state legislature. Gurley was surprised to learn that a corporation even could push a bill through the state legislature. This is not what I learned on Schoolhouse Rocks, he burst out. This line got a lot of applause. He obviously had a lot of the audience's sympathy. Next slide says, quote, In fact, a bill on Governor Ed Rendell's desk that could humble Philadelphia's ambitions began 19 months ago as a proposal drafted by lobbyists for telecommunications companies. Uh, he went on to talk about the chief lobbyist for Comcast, David Cohen, who had been described by the New York Times as the most important executive at the company. In short order, Comcast had its own citywide Wi-Fi plans. You just needed to pay them a monthly fee. 
To put a final nail in the coffin of free municipal broadband, AT&T joined the fight and wrote bans on municipal broadband right into the books in 20 states. Bill's friends and family and their one congressman never stood a chance. That's what you get in modern America when you collide with commercial interests. Next section, legislate your competition away. Gurley introduces us to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which had two goals. One, promote competition. Two, encourage rapid development of new telecommunications technologies. Let's see how it went, Gurley shouts in mock excitement to the crowd. The next thing you see is a slide, and it shows, it says, top four leading telecom providers and it shows, there's two pie charts. It shows that in 1996, the top four telecom providers had 48% of the market share, so half. So in 1996, they had half the market share. Five years later, after the bill was passed, they had 85% of the market share. So that's what you see, they go from half to 85%, the top four telecom providers. Somehow, in the five years after the legislation was passed, the top four telecom providers went from less than half of market share to 85%. Astonishing. It's almost as if the legislation was designed to do the opposite of what it said. Let that sink in. Some call this capitalism, but they're misinformed. Capitalism operates with a free market. This is the opposite. It's closer to corporate government collusion, sometimes known as fascism. If you enjoy a spot of irony, notice what the same critics of capitalism call for. More regulation. As if they can just will that the regulation be written by benevolent people instead of industry insiders. Let's check in on the second priority promoting innovation. This is another slide that just basically shows telecommunications innovation investment go really high in the 90s when the internet was like really cranking uh, and getting moving, you know, from the infrastructure standpoint. And then it starts to collapse around 2000. And then it just really dies off. And by the late aughts, it's near, you know, it's down to 1 50th of what it had been. And then it just drops to zero. So telecommunications equipment, you see it just kind of, yeah, basically disappear. Um, VC investment in telecom equipment also cratered. Eventually, it stopped even being tracked. The bill didn't just fail, Gurley points out. Failure is things staying the same and that the legislators simply wasted everybody's time. This created the opposite of what it was supposed to do. Do we even have a word for that? Legislation like this is to a healthy market what antimatter is to matter. It obliterates it. Most people don't know that the federal government does this with regulation all the time. They step in to fix the industry, say healthcare, access to higher education, housing. Then, through either haplessness or corporate predation, make those things even less available to the American people than before the regulation ever existed while enriching the incumbents. So it cuts both ways. Next section, 
Say it with me. Regulation is the friend of the incumbent. Now, about halfway through this presentation, Gurley introduces us to Joseph Stigler, the father of ripping off the public in the corporate interest. The official term for this is regulatory capture. You see a slide with a picture of Stigler and a quote, and the quote reads, as a rule, regulation is acquired by the industry and is designed and operated primarily for its benefit. If this doesn't red pill you on how regulation is viewed from the perspective of powerful business interests, maybe nothing will. After introducing the concept, Gurley makes the audience repeat, regulation is the friend of the incumbent. Say it under your breath a couple times and try it on for size. It's a sage statement. This statement is the equivalent of a climate scientist pointing out that CO2 and methane trap heat in the atmosphere. It's axiomatic. It's the most important lesson you can learn about why the management of the economy gets worse as the government takes on more responsibility. There's a slide here that describes regulatory capture, and there's several bullet points. I'll just read them to you. Uh, the top one is, in regulatory capture, and pay very close attention because the whole this whole essay, the core of it uh, is about regulatory capture. And so this is definitionally what we're, uh, what we need to understand this bullet point here in regulatory capture a special interest is prioritized over the general interests of the public leading to a net loss for society okay special interest more important getting legislation that benefits it leading to a loss for society for you and me and that's what we're seeing everywhere Next bullet point. Regulation is influenced such that market entry is limited or restricted. Prices are protected or even increase. Mechanisms of influence are money, exposure, and revolving doors. Morgan Stanley did a study on how this kind of legislation performed. There's a quote from Morgan Stanley's study. Regulatory action has the tendency to improve returns for the largest players in the targeted industry. Many attempts to increase competition or improve customer experience have failed to deliver on the promise. I'm going to give you now the last example here and wrap up um, this reading of the essay. Uh, Gurley gives us a slide and it's the number of new banks in the United States from 1993 to 2018. And if you haven't seen this slide, I've seen it around because I kind of have uh, been kind of an econ nerd for a while. Uh, but this is extremely illustrative of regulatory capture. Basically, you start in 1993, uh, you're getting about 50 banks a year in the US. Then towards 2008, you get over 200 some years, down to 100 the next year, but basically you're averaging 170 banks a year, starting up, just like the way anything else starts up, right? You have startup banks. That was a normal thing, 170 of them a year. Um, then you see in 2009, it goes down to like 10, and then 2010, it's like two, and then it's zero. They just stop. Banks just stop opening. 
uh, and it's shocking. It's like you just see the assassination of, of a sector, of the freedom of entry into a sector. Okay, back to the essay. Final example, the Dodd-Frank bill that passed in 2010 designed to address the too-big-to-fail banks that caused the financial crisis made it virtually impossible to start a new bank. How convenient for the too-big-to-fail banks. How does that work out for the consumer? How does that work out for financial resiliency and innovation? Then I make a joke. If I've made you sufficiently furious, smash that subscribe button. Uh, or in this case, uh, you know, go ahead and subscribe on YouTube or wherever. Okay, so this concludes part one of the essay. Um, checking on time. Where are we now? 20 minutes. Okay. Um, so I don't think I know how to like pause this. So I'm just going to, I have to keep it going and see if I want to say anything about it. Yeah, I think I'm not going to say that much. I think the essay speaks for itself about regulatory capture. Uh, if at the highest levels of government, we have created incentives for corporations to manipulate regulation in their own benefit, they will do that. They have to do that. Corporations have to. Uh, do what's in the best interest of their shareholders. And so we have this kind of, I don't know if I want to call it a Gordian knot, but we have this major challenge uh, where we have to figure out how to separate industry and government so that the government is not using its regulatory power to benefit industry. Because when that happens, the average voter, citizen, resident, whatever, is left out. We are left out of the equation. There's a lot of research that, that proves this. So I said this before, but when we see a sort of melting away of prosperity, and we can see on graphs that the 1% of the US just keeps going up, 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 up. They get richer. They know how to capitalize on all of the changes happening in the economy. They know how to capitalize. And then you see the kind of Top 10% is making, they're doing okay. I wish I could do a screenshot of this because you may have seen this. It's a very good graph. And then you see like, you know, basically the middle income isn't getting anywhere and the lower income is probably getting poorer, especially if you start bringing in housing costs and things like that. So that is, what I want you to understand is with regulatory capture, this is by design. And it's treated like an accident. Like, oh, why is everything getting so expensive? <laughs> you know? Uh, and it's like, because it's not a functioning free market. The entire idea of the free market is that there's competition between different, uh, between different business entities and new, fresh, efficient, technologically advanced startups should be able to go in and battle it out with the incumbents through offering a better product for people, product and service. And regulatory capture is a way for the, for the uh, incumbents to build walls. They use the government to build walls, to keep out innovation. And then you just kind of get this stagnation. Hmm, nothing's getting any better. That's weird. You know, maybe your iPhone gets a little bit better. A couple pieces of technology get a little bit better, but most things don't. Um, so 
on that bright note, uh, I'm going to sign off here. Uh, so next week, probably going to do, uh, I'll try to do some kind of a podcast, uh, but I will, I'll definitely be making this more regular. So check back in. Next time uh, I do this, I will try to have a, I'll be reading from the book as well, from Fukuyama's Trust, which there's always like a nice little kernel to take from this book, Trust by Francis Fukuyama, which is just about how trust is one of the most important elements you can have in a society. And he wrote it in 1995. So it was very interesting because he wrote it in a period of high trust. So he's kind of pontificating on the value of trust. And now we're reading it in 2023 when trust has uh, really evaporated from the system. It's in decline in every sector measured. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a fascinating gap to see like he's kind of talking about how valuable trust is in the Clinton era when everybody loved everything. And <laughs> um, so anyway, it, it, it is fun. And um, we'll be reading that uh, as well. And then next week, what I may do is finish Gurley's talk. So Gurley makes two more excellent points in this, uh, in this talk about ways that uh, industry has extracted money directly from the American people through policy uh, and ways that they're trying to continue regulatory capture uh, and bring it to technology, which is like the last thing we have that's freely advancing. And so it's it's a really good, it's a call to, to arms basically, I think, for the tech community to try and get a little autonomy from from the D.C. Um, yeah, the D.C., I don't know what to call I don't want to give it a, <laughs> I was going to call it, you call it a swamp. All right, it's called a swamp sometimes. But, the, you know, it sucks people in and forces them to live under its... Uh, uh, if you are under that regulatory umbrella, you will not be creating innovation. That's in the healthcare space. That's in any space. There's nothing innovative coming out of the heavily regulatory or regulated side of DC. Everything, every major advancement is happening outside of it. I'll leave you there and see you next week. Thank you.